just before we went on sabbatical, I stood before you and told you that I wear suits on Sunday because I want you to know that I'm doing my very best at presenting the Word of God. So we came back from sabbatical. We had a great time. Uh, that was 2009. Uh, about a year and a half or so ago, I lost an incredible amount of weight with much thanks to Mike Dewey back there on the soundboard. And uh, I shed 75 pounds. And so I hung the suits up and I had to buy new clothes. And I like vests. And so I bought a bunch of vests. And, and so now I wear a vest on Sunday morning and a bit more casual clothes. But my commitment to you to bring the very best that I have remains. And it's a passion of mine. I feel that I need to honor God's word. I'm just honoring it in a vest. So this is the new me. And what I, want to, what I want to share this with you for is to let you know that sometimes things change. Sometimes people change. Now, I hear frequently that people don't change. And generally, I hear that when somebody's angry at someone else. People don't change. Well, people do change. Sometimes the change is visible on the outside. Sometimes the change is on the inside. I'm here to tell you the type of change that we're going to talk about today is transformation. Transformation, regeneration by the Holy Spirit. And when that change happens, there should be some outward visible evidence of that change. So people change. That's what I want you to hold on to today. The important changes are inside, but those important changes should be visible on the outside. Now, we are at the end of a month of prayer, fasting, and vision. Uh, for the first week, we kind of established a foundation of why we're better together, a scriptural foundation, and we found out that we are a body uh, made up of a bunch of individuals, and each individual has a particular gift. Each individual is absolutely vital to the functioning of the body. There's nobody here by coincidence. God has brought us all into this assembly, and he has something for all of us to do. So in week two, we talked about prayer, and uh, what we looked at in prayer is, you know, our, our daily prayers are good. Those petitions we put for, uh, before God, our supplications are good. But the real reason of prayer is to express the union that we have with Christ and we, with each other. So we, we, we call prayer communion with our Father. Uh, so it's, it's an intimate union that we express in our prayers and in the way we act with each other. Now, week three was about fasting and um, the whole idea on fasting was that when you're fasting, for those of you that are fasting right now, you're going to know exactly what I'm talking about. One of your primary thoughts is, when is this fast going to be over? When am I going to be able to eat again? And so we fast not just to sacrifice for God, but to remember that we were in a period in which the bridegroom has gone away. The bridegroom is going to come back. When he comes back, he's going to take us home. There's going to be a feast. There's going to be a celebration. And that will be the end of, of a, a spiritual fast. So we fast to remind ourselves that Jesus Christ is coming back. And that he's made a promise to us and that God is good on his promises. This year, this week, we're going to talk about vision and how all this fits together. And Paul is going to show us some of this in the story of his own transformation. Now, we've been looking at Paul for a while, and we know he's undergone some incredible transformations. This week, we're going to look at three different facets of Paul's transformation. It's going to be the cost that Paul paid, uh, and that's in verses 2 through 6. 
Then we'll see a catch, what happened because he paid it in verses 7 through 9. And then we'll see the crown that Paul received in verses 10 through 21. So let's take a look at this cost in verses 2 through 6. Paul says, look out for the dogs. Now, let me give you the the context here. Paul has written this letter to the Philippians because uh, people have infiltrated the church. Judaizers have showed up. And um, they're probably believers, but they're kind of adding to the gospel. Uh, they're saying there are other things you've got to do other than have faith in Jesus Christ to be saved. Uh, now, this kind of harkens back to Jewish history, in which the Jews believed that if you're going to have a relationship with God, you're going to have to become Jewish. So that would involve circumcision. That would involve a certain type of baptism called a mikvah. Uh, and so these people have shown up in Philippi, and they're saying you've got to be circumcised if you're going to be a believer. And, and there's some other things that are happening in Philippi. And Paul is addressing them. And in, verse, in chapter 3 here, he kind of gets down to the nitty-gritty. And he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So the Jews would have known exactly who he was talking about. It was these men that were teaching that circumcision was necessary in order to be saved. And then Paul says in verse 3, for we are the circumcision. Now there's an emphasis there that we have to pick up. Because Paul's saying, what they're not saying, what they're saying is not true. We're the ones that have the truth. We are the circumcision. And what he's talking about is the mark of God's people. Prior to the arrival, the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Christ, the mark of God's people was circumcision. Now they are being circumcised spiritually in the heart. And we can find that in a number of different areas of Scripture. So it says, we're the circumcision. We bear the mark of God. We who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now, when we see the flesh in the Old Testament, see the flesh in the New Testament, it can have a variety of meanings. Generally, what Paul is trying to say is the works, the things that we do. It's not our flesh. This is not what's sinful. It's the heart and the motivation behind the heart. And what Paul is trying to say, it's not the works of the flesh. It's not the things that you do are going to save you. We're the ones who are, who are uh, God's people. Uh, so put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the things that you can do. You can't work your way into heaven. You can't do things to garner the favor of God. And then Paul goes and starts describing himself in verse 4. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, I have reason for confidence in the works that I've done also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Now, Paul had a sparkling reputation. He was the rising star of the Sanhedrin, sat underneath Gamaliel, Uh, one of the best teachers Israel ever had. Uh, He was passionate. He was a a brilliant academic. Uh, And furthermore, in verse 5, we see he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee. So he's got all the credentials. He's not just a Pharisee. He's one of the top Pharisees. And as so, he's got all of the calling cards, but he also has, in verse 6, zeal. He has passion. 
He's highly motivated. Motivated by what? A persecutor of the church. So we talked about this last week. He was passionate about this. He was consumed about it. He had all the credentials and he was going for it. So he's a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness, he says, under the law, blameless. This is how Paul saw himself before he got saved. He was a good guy. He was a theologian. He was a good Jew. He was righteous under the law. And he was doing God's work. He's chasing down these followers of Jesus Christ and having them executed. Had a pretty high vision of himself. Paul was intimately familiar with what we would call works salvation, working our way into heaven. But he's undergoing this transformation. And those are the things that Paul was going to have to give up. He was going to have to give up his reputation with the Jews. He was going to have to give up his his anger at the church. Those were the two things that identified Paul the strongest. Paul was all wrapped up in who he was, and he was this academic theologian leader guy who was out to kill the Christians. The personal cost to Paul to be transformed was absolutely enormous. He would have to walk away from all that, walk away from everything that he spent his entire life building. And more than that, Paul was going to have to put away his anger. Paul was going to have to get control of his emotions. Paul was going to have to look at the church a little bit differently than the way he saw the church prior. So there's some participation on Paul's part here, amen? Okay, so here's the catch. Here's what happens when he decides that he's going to do this. He says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He said, whatever I had... Whatever I hope to get from what I had, I am counting as a loss. I'm writing it off. Verse 8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Everything Paul had, Everything that he valued, when he looked at it through the lens of Jesus Christ and what he got from the transformation that he was going through was rubbish. Right now, we should each be taking inventory. What do I have? What do I count as valuable? And how how does that compare to Jesus Christ? Am I willing to give all that up to gain the knowledge of Jesus Christ? Am I willing to put it on the line so that I can draw closer to my Lord in heaven? Not just that. And be found in him. Verse 9. Not having any righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, the catch for Paul was in order to get something invaluable, he was going to have to give up everything that he found to be valuable. And he was going to have to recognize that he didn't have 
the righteousness that he needed. His righteousness was going to have to come from some other source. He wasn't blameless. He'd been fooling himself. The things that he had accumulated around him weren't valuable. He'd been fooling himself about them. They all looked like rubbish once he got a glimpse of Jesus Christ. So Paul decides, I'm going to forsake any personal gain for the sake of Christ. You know, Paul lived in a culture totally different than ours. He lived in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was all about you, what you get. It was all about the benefits of living in the Roman Empire. And all of those people had learned that you get what you need by doing what you need to do. Your personal gain was what it was all about. How big was your house? How nice were your clothes? How many vests did you have? The Roman Empire was based on on lavish luxury. Well, maybe, maybe it wasn't so different than our culture. I mean, don't we live in a time where where you don't do something unless you get something? Don't we live in a time where if if there's no foreseeable benefit to what you're doing, you don't want to be involved in it? Don't we live in a time where, where we say, what's in it for me? Paul said, I'm willing to give up everything that's in it for me, for Jesus Christ. He had his eyes set on eternity. He had his eyes set on the future. It wasn't about his personal gain. It was for the sake of Christ. For the sake of the gospel. Look at his focus. Verse 10. He did all this that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible. Now, look what he just said. I'm giving it all up so that I can know Christ, so that I can share in his sufferings. And I'm willing to do whatever I got to do to achieve that. So that I may attain. This means to strive for, to arrive at. Now, that, those are hard words because Paul just said that the works of the flesh don't benefit us any. Okay? Now he's saying that I need to strive for the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He says, I'm not there yet. I, can, I, I know what the goal is. God wants from me holiness. He wants from me perfection. I haven't obtained it yet, but I'm, I'm putting everything I've got into it. I've given up everything I can to, to achieve this in my life. Now, what makes that any different then works salvation. It's the next phrase. Look what he says. Because Christ has made me his own. That's past tense. He's doing it because he already belongs to Christ. He's doing it because the deal's already done. It's already sealed. He's not doing it because he's trying to work into Christ's favor. He's doing it because Christ saved him. It's his response to being transformed. Verse 13, he says, Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, 
But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I've got my eyes set on eternity. I've gotten a glimpse of where I'm going. I've gotten a glimpse of what God is doing in my life. I can see the glory that's destined for me, and I'm going to do everything that I can to work towards that. Paul's been guaranteed those things. What flows out of him is gratitude. Verse 15, let those who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, well, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Now, Paul, Paul here is working out his salvation. In chapter 2 of Philippians, we see that we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. He's not working towards his salvation. He's working in his salvation. We have to understand this. Even as he acknowledges that it's a finished work, that he belongs to Jesus Christ, he's working towards it. It's the, the concept that's kind of hard for us to grasp called the already and not yet. He's already saved, but he's working towards his salvation. He gave up everything, that was the cost, but he received Christ. He sacrificed everything that had any value to him to receive something infinitely more valuable. And now, now he sees this as a crown. And he wants all believers to see it the same way. He wants everybody to have the same perception he has. Because Paul works just as hard at following Christ as he did in his previous endeavors. He received this crown. 17. Brothers, join in imitating. Now, imitating here means becoming like, working at becoming like. Uh, and, you know, we, we, we are all going through this process we call sanctification, call it transformation. We're all going through the process of being made like God, uh, step by step, little by little. Sometimes we take two steps forward and half a step back, okay? but we are all in process. Paul understands that he's in that process. He understands that even having going through the process is his guarantee that God sees that process as completed in Jesus Christ. So Paul doesn't have to live up to it, but he's got a zeal for holiness now that he didn't have before. He's got a zeal for righteousness that he didn't have before. So he wants more of that. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There are people that oppose them. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this would have some weight with citizens of the Roman Empire. Because a citizen of the Roman Empire had rights and privileges, and it was a very valuable thing to have. Paul says, we're not citizens of the Roman Empire. We are citizens of heaven. This is far more valuable than anything the Roman Empire could give you. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject 
all things to himself. Paul's crown in this transformation is an ultimate crown. The transformation will be complete when he stands in glory with Jesus Christ, in union with Christ, with every other believer. When he stands in a place where there is no more strife, no more contention, no more judging, no more comparing, no more bitterness, no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, just indescribable joy and indescribable peace. And it's all made possible by the one who subjects all things to himself, Jesus Christ. So we see this cost. We see what Paul gave up. He gave up everything that meant anything to him. We saw the catch. This is why he gave it up. He gave it up because Christ surpasses everything else in value. And we saw the crown. What he got was union with Christ and peace. If you believe that Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you have recognized him as Savior, if you have confessed your sins, if you have repented from them, you have that crown. You have the same crown that Paul has. All of us who call on him as Savior have that crown right now. But like Paul, we are called to strive for it. Why? The answer was back there in verse 12. Because Christ has made us his own. We strive for it not out of obligation, not out of some commitment that we made. We strive at it because of gratitude for what God has done. We show our appreciation for grace by striving for his holiness. Now, we don't have to do this on our own. We have the Holy Spirit in here to prompt us and convict us when we stray from those lines. But we strive for it because we love Christ. We strive for it because he's rescued us from all of those worldly things that would drag us down and hinder us. See, we're not working for our salvation, but at the same time, we're striving for perfection and holiness. Now, I love that tension. i got to tell you something. The older I get, the more I appreciate it. Because when I was younger, I understood it, but it frustrated me. I'm working for this, and I'm never going to get it. Well, not never, but how long? As long as you're alive. And I've begun to savor it. I love the, the striving. I love the working towards it. I love drawing closer and closer to my Father. That's what we're called to do. And as people around us watch us, and they look at us and go, you've changed. Yes, I have. Something's happened inside I have a hunger and, and a yearning for righteousness and holiness that I didn't have before. And i got to tell you something. The more that I, I absorb of, of holiness and righteousness, the more I want. It's like the ultimate end of a fast. I can't get enough of it. I want more. I want more. In some ways, I believe this is a picture of eternity. I believe we will ever be drawing closer and closer and closer to God. I think he's giving us a taste of heaven. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Yes, I do. Work towards it. I'll help you. That's what God says. 
Now, that's an inner change that should be visible on the outside. The inner change is the work of the Holy Spirit. The outward expression is our participation in it. So, you know, I, I, I love those ideas I used to have that God would somehow wave some magic wand over me and make me think differently. But I have to participate in this. That's what Paul's finding out. That's what he's telling us. It takes some work. Brothers and sisters, people change. I hear that they don't, but they do. In particular, people who have had an encounter with Jesus Christ change. God is changing us individually. He's changing us corporately as well. He's changing us. Warrington Bible Fellowship. He's changing us. There's an even bigger story to tell here. And it's right there in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body? Who will transform our lowly individual bodies? Who will transform us individually to be like his glorious body? To be part of his glorious body? To be one with the body of Christ? By the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So God is working with us as a body as well. Weaving our hearts together. Revealing to us step by step the union that we have with each other. And the union that we have with him. Transforming us brothers and sisters. He's sanctifying you, me, and Warrington Bible Fellowship. Making us into a reflection of his glory. So what is this work we have to do? What is this striving we have to do? You know, we're, we're a good organization. Like any good organization, we have a mission statement. We have a vision statement. I mean, you have to have those, right? How will we know what to do if we don't have a mission statement and a vision statement? Well, we've got one. It's in our Constitution. How many of you folks read the Constitution last week? I didn't either. But we have a mission statement. So we're going to get familiar with it this morning. I'm going to ask you to stand up and recite this with me. This is, we're doing a lot of liturgy today, right? Okay. Here's our mission as, as it's seen in our Constitution. Just read along with me. To fulfill our part in Christ's great commission as described in Matthew 28, 19 through 20 and Acts 1, 8 witnessing to the lost as well as discipling baptizing and teaching believers to obey his commands. It's a good mission statement but what good is a mission statement without a vision statement? We've got one of those too and it's in the constitution as well recite with me our vision statement to equip the body of Christ to do the work of the church through the balanced teaching of worship, the truth of God's word, and service to each other and those in the community into which he has placed us. In short, to be a place to grow spiritually and a place to connect with others. Have a seat. That's a good mission statement. It's a good vision statement. We're all called to these efforts. 
We're all called to fulfill the Great Commission. But you know what? None of us can do it on our own. We can't do this by ourselves. This is why we need to be together. This is why we need to understand better together. Individually, we cannot reach Warrington for the sake of the gospel. We need everybody working in the same direction. It's a good vision statement because it's based on the best vision statement ever written for any organization ever. We mentioned it in the mission statement, Matthew 28, 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, we're changing together. That's what this month has been about. God is sanctifying us. God is transforming us. He's using us for his glory. And he intends to use us for his glory. And there should be nothing that we are unwilling to sacrifice for that. Nothing. Nothing that we're unwilling to give up in gratitude to him for what he has in store for each of us. You see, that's what the fasting has been about all this month. What will we sacrifice for each other as a body? What will we sacrifice to the Lord for the sake of his name, for the sake of the gospel? That's the lesson we should learn from our time spent together fasting. So we're going to pray again.